I tell Larry, every time we sing that song, His Robes for Mine, I tell him gratefully that when we sing it on a Sunday morning, it's going through my head all Sunday afternoon. It's just one of those songs, um, I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost, that Jesus forsaken and God estranged from God, just the words to that, that it so sums up what Jesus did on the cross and the tune. So I'm grateful again. No matter what you're doing at 3 o'clock, if you wonder what I'm doing at 3 o'clock, it'll be that song going through my head, whatever I'm doing this afternoon. So I'm grateful. I'd ask you to be praying for Skyler and his family. Skyler preached his grandfather's funeral yesterday. And um, great man, wonderful man. What little I knew him, and I know you knew him so much better your whole life. But I, I love Skyler's grandpa. But I, it's my privilege to take a little of the load off Skyler this week since he was preparing for a funeral and to preach this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn back to the book of Acts. I realized last week I had the privilege to preach here from Acts, and I told you last week if I were to title last week's message, it was a missionary when he's not on a mission trip, because we looked at the end of Paul's life when he was not on a mission trip, but he was a prisoner in Acts 27 and 28 uh, on a ship on his way to Rome, and we get to see two weeks in a horrible storm and then the shipwreck. And there were a few lessons we learned last week from what a missionary looks like when he's not on a mission trip. Paul reminded us to remain courageous even when we're outnumbered. There were 276 people on board that ship. Only three of them that we know of were believers, Paul and his two companions. And yet Paul had the courage to speak up for Christ and to pray in the presence of all of them. So we were reminded to remain courageous even when we're outnumbered. Also, God reminded us to balance sovereignty and responsibility. God said everybody's going to be saved on this ship. Not one person will be lost. That did not make Paul lazy. That prompted Paul to say, you guys need to eat. We haven't eaten in two weeks because of this storm. You need to eat, get your strength. You're going to have to swim to shore. His attitude could have been, why? God's going to survive, make all of us survive. So whether we eat or not, whether we throw the cargo over or not, whether we all stay together or not, it doesn't matter. But it's a beautiful picture of balancing God's absolute sovereignty in our lives and our responsibility. Paul was a man of God and a man of action. And the last thing we learned was that Paul demonstrated the heart of a servant. The man who wrote Romans, the man who wrote Galatians, the man who planted churches all across the Roman Empire, the greatest missionary in the first century. We find in Acts chapter 27 and 28 gathering firewood to keep a fire going, to keep people warm. He had the heart of a servant, even though God had used him in these fantastic ways. Today I want us to back up a chapter. I realize it's out of order. But in Acts chapter 26, if last week was a missionary when he's not on a mission trip, today's is a missionary when he's explaining the plan. A missionary when he's explaining the plan. So if you're making your way to Acts chapter 26, let me just give you kind of the setting briefly. In Acts chapter 21, Paul returns to Jerusalem after one of those mission trips, and the Jews try to kill him. It's not much of a welcome home. Welcome home, son of Jerusalem, and then they try to kill him. The Roman guards in Acts 21 save Paul and arrest him to keep the riot from happening in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 23, Paul's taken from Jerusalem, still as a prisoner, this is right before his um, boat trip, his, his trip on the ship where he's shipwrecked. He's on his way toward that. But in Acts chapter 23, they take him as a prisoner from Jerusalem down to Caesarea, which is right on the coast. 
And that's where he's going to be tried or put on trial. His first trial in Acts chapter 23 is before the governor there named Felix. Felix is unsure what to do with him after the first trial, so he just leaves him in prison. It's not fair, but that's what happens to Paul. If you found Acts 26, look at, just go back to the very end of Acts 24. I want to show you how 24 ends, and then we'll get to 26. Acts 24, look at verse 24. After some days, Felix, now that's the governor who's got Paul in prison, came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jew, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that Paul would give him some money. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus in desiring to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. Now, sometimes we're familiar with these stories, but folks, that's two years that we might say was lost sitting in a prison because Felix wouldn't do the right thing and release an innocent man. If we were to talk to Paul, we would, might have said to him, Paul, what Felix is wanting is a bribe. He wants to receive some money. It was illegal in the Roman Empire, but it happened all the time. And so we would tell Paul, a bribe gets you freedom, and the truth gets you two years in jail. Now, what do you want to do? What do you want to give Felix? A bribe gets you out. The truth keeps you in. And Paul would say, I think I'll just give him truth. Truth about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Drusilla, at the end of chapter 24, who was Felix's wife, was actually his third wife. Felix had seduced her away from her rightful husband. Felix was an immoral man and a greedy man. He literally was waiting on a bribe from Paul while he slept with another man's wife. John Stott, one of my favorite Bible scholars, says this, she was actually, in fact, his third wife. The lax morals of Felix and Drusilla helped to explain the topics which Paul spoke to them about, righteousness, self-control, and judgment. The release of Felix from his sin was more important to Paul than his own release from prison. So Paul, operating from, at least from an earthly perspective, he's operating from a position of weakness. He's the humble prisoner in the presence of the governor. And what's the prisoner going to speak about? Righteousness. Felix, you desperately need some. Self-control. Felix, you obviously don't have any. And judgment. Felix, it's headed your way. Now in chapter 25, Felix is replaced by somebody named Festus. Now, I realize if you're in the older half of our congregation, Festus takes you to the only other person you've probably ever known by the name of Festus. That Festus in Gunsmoke is the second Festus. This is the first Festus, and he's the new Roman governor that replaces Felix. 
And in chapter 25, King Agrippa, who was the Jewish king, comes to pay the new governor, Festus, a visit. In chapter 26, what we're going to read today is when Paul makes his defense before King Agrippa. It's been two long years, folks. Two long years. Think about what you were doing two years ago. Paul's been locked up for two years. No churches, no mission trips, very few sermons. The question is, what will, what will two years have done to Paul? What will two years have done to, to his message? He's finally going to get brought again before a, a, a new court, somebody new to hear his case, King Agrippa. And will the long delay have changed the man? Will the long delay have changed the message? Paul, is it time to back off? Well, would you read with me, starting with verse 1 in, a in Acts 26? So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. I have known, they have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by our God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I want to stop right there and just say, if we had been coaching Paul when it comes time to make your defense, keep it as non-controversial as possible. We want you back out on the mission field. I mean, you're, you're, our, you're our cleanup hitter. You're the best. And Paul's like, I'm going to run right to the resurrection. I'm going to talk to him about God raising dead people. And some of us might have been like, Paul, Paul, soften it a little bit. Talk to him about how God makes marriages better, how God makes family life better. And he's like, no, the resurrection is so central, I'm running right to that. Because the resurrection, that God is not just good for this life, he raises the dead, he gives us new life. That's so central to Christianity. Paul's like, yeah, I'm running to that one. Verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only looked up many of the saints, I'm sorry, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. But in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And then in verse 12, he talks about when God actually converted him. It's, it's his baptismal testimony like we just heard from Bethany. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now, I want to stop again and just say, what Paul says to King Agrippa is this. I'm here today before you because of that day on the road to Damascus. If that day hadn't happened, this day wouldn't happen. I'm here today, King Agrippa, because of what happened to me on that day. That day changed my life. And if God hadn't broken into my world on Damascus, I wouldn't be a prisoner before you today. That's the reason I'm here. Now, as Paul lays that out in verse 18 that we're about to read, he's going to tell us what the plan is. It's a missionary explaining the plan. In verse 17, he says, God promised to deliver me from your people and from the Gentiles. Paul, I'm not going to let you die until your race is over. They, they cannot take your life till I say, I'm done with you. I will deliver you. You will finish your course. They can't kill you till I say they can kill you. And then he said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you. And what are you going to do when you go to the Gentiles, Paul? What's the plan? And verse 18 is the plan. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 18 is a missionary explaining the plan. Or, verse 18, is a missionary explaining the gospel. This is the gospel plan. I would say, church, verse 18 is one of the greatest summary statements on the plan anywhere in the New Testament. There's more to the gospel than what verse 18 says, and the rest of the New Testament does flesh out what the rest is. But verse 18 is a great summary statement on what the plan was that was given to the missionary that was supposed to carry out the plan. It is a great summary statement. And I think this missionary, Paul, would say, this is God's plan from a missionary who's in jail because of the plan. And if you want to know what the plan was, let's hear it from somebody who was so committed to the plan that they ended up in jail because of the plan. So when God's missionary is explaining the plan, what does he highlight? And I just want to take a few minutes this morning to give you these snapshots of what is highlighted when the missionary who's paying the price for the plan, what he thinks the plan is. What did God tell him the plan was on the road to Damascus? Let me try to summarize it with just five statements. First, God's plan includes correcting your sight. God's plan will include correcting your sight. He says, I'm sending you these to these people to open their eyes. That's correcting your sight. God has to open blind eyes. Just to give you a couple other places where the New Testament supports this, 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. Your eyes can't see how good God wants to be to you. Your eyes can't get it. 
God has to open your eyes so you can see it. 2 Corinthians 3, in talking about the Old Testament, Paul says, their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that's the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Guys, we can't see it. We can't get it. And so the first part of the plan, Paul um, relays to King Agrippa, is God has to open blind eyes. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That's God correcting your sight. Jesus prayed in Matthew 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to children. I mean, it's all over the New Testament. Our eyesight is so messed up, we can't see it right. And Paul says, hey, here's the first step. I had, I had to be a part of opening their eyes. It's kind of funny, Wednesday night after, um, after college discipleship ended, one of our students came up to me afterwards, and she just said, Doug, I, I, have, a, I have a Bible question just in my own Bible reading. And I was like, I'll, I mean, I'll try. And she said, well, it's out of Psalms. And she, and she said, it's, it's a place in Psalms where, where David says, I know I'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure I understand that. And she said, but I want you to read the verses before it and after it in this psalm and tell me what you think he means. And so she handed me her Bible. I have never seen a Bible with such tiny font in my life. Now, a couple years ago, we made fun of my older brother because he asked his family for a new Bible for Christmas, and he asked if, if they could get him the large print, and we were ruthless to him. It was no longer funny Wednesday night because she handed me her Bible, and, and fortunately, I could still read the words. I mean, it's tiny. I don't know why you print a Bible that the font's so small you could put like six chapters on one page. But I could still read the words, but the verse numbers were even smaller, and they were even printed in lighter print. And they were just dots to me. And she's like, it's, it's, ver it's verse 11. I was like, I, I heard you. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at her Bible, and, I, and I'm like, where's verse 11? I mean, I, I, can, I can read the whole page till I find it. I mean, I know it's after verse 10, but where's verse 10? And, she, and she's like, it's right here. I mean, her finger cover, covered the whole paragraph. It's like, it's right here. <laughs> Listen. Spiritually, that's us. When you can say, no eye has seen, but God has to reveal, it's because we can't see it. God's plan involves you seeing things you could have never seen on your own, and I couldn't either. With his help, we see sin differently, don't we? We look at the cross differently. It was, tor it was torture in the first century, and we sing songs about it today. We see God's love differently. We see holiness differently. We see eternity differently. We see heaven and hell differently. We see the good news of the gospel differently. We see family differently. We see marriage differently. We see forgiveness differently. And maybe more important than anything else, we see God differently. The first step in the plan was... Um, We've got, to correct, we've got to correct your vision. We've got to correct your sight. Number two, after he says, I'm going to open their eyes, 
He says, um, so that they may turn from darkness to light. The plan includes correcting your sight. Number two, the plan in includes changing your lifestyle. That's part of the plan. That's part of the gospel. To open their eyes so they can turn from darkness to light. Salvation always involves a turn, folks. It always involves a turn. And in this passage, it's described as turning from darkness to light. Living in spiritual darkness, that's where we were. We were living in moral darkness. We were living in sin. And God changes us so that we're now living in light. We're living in truth. We're living clean. He doesn't describe it as you're living in light, and I'm going to make it so that you're living in more light. It's you're living in darkness, and now you get to live in light. Another passage, just, I want to throw a few of these out each time. Romans 13, 11. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy. In Romans 13, Paul describes day people and night people. And aren't there day people and night people? And Paul's like, listen, you have been saved. You're day people now. Live like day people. You're people of the light. You used to be people of the darkness. You're not anymore. And Paul would say, listen, that, that was just part of the plan. I mean, from the very beginning, God said, you're going to go to the Gentiles. You're going to be a part of opening their eyes and turning them from darkness to light. Jesus said in John 8, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. It's just part of the plan. This is a missionary in verse 18 explaining the plan, and the second part of the plan is your lifestyle is going to change. Can I just remind you that all of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian, all of us at one time were prisoners to the dark. All of us. One form of darkness or sin may have been more tempting to you than another, and another form of darkness or sin may have been more tempting to me, but we all needed out, right? We all needed out of the darkness. I do think that Christians sometimes mistakenly view sin wrong. Let me tell you how I think sometimes we view sin. Okay, this is just right where we live. I think sometimes we think sin is something I might really enjoy and really like, but I can't do it because I'm a Christian. But I watch the world do it. And I might really like it, but I'm a Christian. It's off limits for me. Poor me. We need to trust God in the way he describes sin. It's all darkness. It's all evil. It's all negative. It's all bad. It's all shame. It's all regret. It's all death. It's all darkness. 1 Peter 2.9, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, it's marvelous light. Don't look back at the darkness and think I'm missing out. It's marvelous light. You know, physical darkness is fun for a while. Don't know if you've ever been on one of those cave tours where they take you down to the very bottom of the cave, and they say we're going to turn off all the lights, and it's absolute. They say there's almost no place on the surface of the earth you can experience it, but down here it's absolute darkness. Your eyes will never adjust. I mean, you can't see your hand in front of your face, and they turn them off. We were on a cave tour like that, and you like think, my eyes will adjust here in a minute, and they're like, no, and then they start telling you how many days it would take in absolute darkness before it permanently affects your eyes. 
Living in physical darkness is fun for a little while and you experience it. It's a horrible way to live your life. The same is true spiritually. The same is true morally. It's a horrible way to, to live your life. So this missionary in Acts 26 says, part of the plan is for God to correct your sight, and part of the plan is for him to change your lifestyle. Number three, God's plan includes conquering your enemy. He says, you're going to open their eyes so they can turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's conquering your enemy. I suspect many people today would probably say this. I may not be under the reign of Christ, but I'm certainly not under the rule of Satan. I'm kind of neutral. I'm in the middle. I mean, that's, where, that's where most people, Oklahomans, would probably put themselves. I may not be totally under the reign of Christ. He's not my king, but at least I'm not under the rule of Satan. The Bible doesn't ever present this middle ground. Listen, if a person is not in Christ, he's right where Satan wants him. So Satan would say, go ahead, be content, be comfortable, be complacent, and be condemned. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Dominion of darkness, kingdom of Christ. It's literally, the plan is literally a change of kingdoms. The gospel is literally a change of kingdoms. Christ conquered your enemy at the cross. He took you from your enemy's reign so you could now be under God's reign. Colossians 2, at the cross, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, by triumphing, I can't even say it, by triumphing over them in Christ. You know what? Adam at the very beginning couldn't beat the enemy, and Eve couldn't beat the enemy, and Peter in Luke chapter 22 couldn't beat the enemy. Jesus told him, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. You're going to lose this one. But when you've been restored, encourage the brothers. Listen, if Adam couldn't beat him, and Eve couldn't beat him, and Peter couldn't beat him, and I can't beat him, and then along comes Christ, and he says, I'll beat him for you. I will conquer your enemy. And you get transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. You know what, what my fear is? Let me just tell you. I, I think there's a lot of people out there that when they think about the gospel or they think about God's plan, they're like, I'm not sure I want the whole plan. I just want number four. And number four in God's plan is that God's plan includes canceling your debt. He says you're going to open their eyes. That's the first one. So they can move from darkness to light, that's the second one, and from the power of Satan to God, that's the third one, and that they may receive forgiveness of their sins, that's the fourth one. Pardon. Forgiveness. No condemnation, Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Totally true. You're declared righteous by putting your faith in Christ. You have to believe you're a sinner. You have to hate your sin. You have to know you deserve punishment. You long to be free and forgiven. And God's plan includes that forgiveness. It does include that forgiveness. Aren't you grateful? But church, I, I, I grew up in Kansas City, and we went to some really good Baptist churches. I mean, I, 
that's almost the only part of the plan I ever heard about. Would you like to have your sins forgiven? Come to Christ. Would you like to have your sins forgiven? Come to Christ. Would you like to have your debt canceled? Come to Christ. I think there's people out there in the world, if that's all they hear, they're like, if that's all the plan is, yeah, I would like to have my, what Jesus did on the cross to take my punishment, I want to have my sins forgiven. I don't really want to have my eyesight corrected. I don't want to see everything differently in life. I just want my sins forgiven. I don't really want God to change my lifestyle. I just want him to cancel my debt. But I don't want him to radically change my lifestyle and make me change from living in darkness into marvelous light. I just want my sins forgiven. I don't really think he has to conquer my enemy. I just want my sins forgiven. I think we run to the fourth one, and the fourth one's true. The gospel is that you get forgiveness, but that's not all the gospel. The gospel's more than that. And this missionary in verse 18 is giving us the whole plan. Well, the fifth one. God's plan includes correcting your sight, changing your lifestyle, conquering your enemy, canceling your debt. And number five, he says, God's plan includes creating your people. Notice what he says, you're going to have your sins forgiven and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You have a place among a group of people. You're no longer by yourself. You have a place among those who are sanctified. It's not just you being sanctified. You have a place among a bunch of people that are also being sanctified. You're not left alone. Sanctified is just a word that means being made holy. You have been made holy, and there's a bunch of other people that are by God's grace being made holy, and you do it with them. You know, I sometimes hear people say, and I felt it at times, once you become a Christian, you start following Christ, you kind of feel like, I, I don't really belong in this world anymore. I don't fit sometimes in this world. Their jokes aren't funny, funny to me anymore. Some of their movies I can't go see. Our priorities are different. I, I don't belong anymore. I don't fit like I used to. And that's probably true. Okay, that's probably a good thing when you feel that. But you do have a people you do belong to. You do. 1 Peter 2 says, you are now, and it's plural, not singular, you, plural, are a chosen race, a royal police, priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Listen, I'm not a royal priesthood all by myself. I'm not a holy nation all by myself. I am with you. Together we're those things. You now have a place. You now have a portion. You now have an inheritance. You now have a seat at the table, but you don't sit at the table by yourself. There's this group of redeemed people that God is sanctifying. Listen, join the group. You have a place among the group. You now fit. And he ends by saying it's not because of your effort. The end of verse 18, all this happens because you put your faith in Christ. It's not your good works that do it. It's Christ. Do you, do you know how important it is to have a group to belong to? I hope, I hope God burdens your heart with how important that is. One day it'll be in heaven, we'll be with the group, with all the tongues and tribes and nations around the throne. Right now, it's us. I mean, this, this is also a verse about how important the church is. This is us. 
um, another deal for Wednesday night. Sometimes when the 6.30 time ends with, with the prayer meeting and Bible study and we don't have the adult, I mean the college discipleship until 8, it, it's just a great time in the fellowship hall of all those people mixing. And I was, I was standing there Wednesday night. Um, I apologize to you guys. I didn't ask him if I could use him. I was talking to Patrick, and I was talking to Jerry. And the three of us were standing there just visiting. And I do remember thinking when it was over, here's a guy way younger than me and a guy somewhat older than me. <laughs> and without Christ, we would have nothing in common. I mean, Jerry from Florida, what would have brought him to this group standing here, and Patrick, just a student here. We don't, we don't have anything in common, really, and all of a sudden Christ is like, hey, you're a people. I mean, Wednesday night, that's my people. I look around here, you, Toby's my people, right? Maria's my people. I now have a place among those who are being redeemed and sanctified. That's part of the plan, too. I, I, st I still believe there's people who say, listen, I want the forgiveness. I really don't need the people. I want the forgiveness. I don't want the changed lifestyle. I want the people. I don't want my, my whole vision being changed in the way I view life. God, can I just have number four? Can I have my sin canceled? Can I have my debt canceled? Can I be forgiven? And God's like, hey, this is a package deal. It's a package. This is what the missionary was supposed to take to the Gentiles was the whole package. None of it's based on your own good works. You don't get the people because you're good. You don't even get the changed lifestyle because you're good. The whole package comes, and the missionary's like, hey, this was the package. This was the plan. The plan included all five. Let me just give them to you again. God's plan includes correcting your sight, changing your lifestyle, conquering your enemy, canceling your debt, and creating your people. That's the offer. I, I think we do the gospel in injustice when we just highlight one or two of those. And God's like, hey, um, whose plan are you preaching? That, that's not my plan. That's not the plan laid out in verse 18. It would be like when I have a chance to visit with um, couples that are engaged and getting ready to do their wedding, and I tell them, hey, here's the plan for marriage. Okay, here's the plan for marriage. Um, you probably should share resources. So whatever you make and whatever you make, you might want to pool it together into like you, you had your checkbook and you have your checkbook. You might want to have our checkbook now. And that's the plan for marriage. Like, I mean, I was a nerdy accounting major in college. So that, all I want to talk about is the finance. You probably ought to pool it and that's the plan. And got to be like, no, the plan for marriage is massive. That's like one little bitty slice, Doug. You're just giving them a slice of the whole plan for marriage. You're an idiot. Give them the whole plan. We get to God's plan for redeeming people, and we're like, hey, here, you want to have your sins forgiven? I've been to youth camps that that's all that was stressed. You want to have your sins forgiven? Come on, come on. I grew up in good churches, and I felt like that was the main part of the plan that was presented. And Paul's like, no, here's the whole plan. The whole plan is all of it together. And can I just remind you, it's a hard plan, okay? It's, it's actually kind of a hard plan. Here's what I mean by that. The gospel's difficult at times. Jesus preached this plan perfectly, right? I mean, if, there's never been a better preacher. If you could have had him this morning or me, if you could have had Skylar this morning or me, there, no comparison. Jesus preached this plan perfectly, and he lived it perfectly. He had the life to back it up. No one could say, hey, the preacher's a hypocrite. 
He lived the plan perfectly, and he preached it perfectly, and at the end of three years, what did they do to him? They killed him. We don't like the plan. We don't like the messenger. And we think you ought to die. And God's so sovereign, he's like, well, I can make that work in my plan too. He was going to die all along. But from an earthly perspective, they so didn't like the plan, they killed the messenger. It's not necessarily an easy plan, but it's the only plan we have. God's offering this package. And by the way, all five of those are amazing gifts. I needed a new lifestyle. I needed a new people. I needed my debt canceled. I needed my eyesight improved, and I needed my enemy conquered. And God's like, hey, I have a plan for that. I have a plan for all of that. And may I just remind you, in this story, where we have a missionary explaining the plan, it's one of the greatest summaries of the plan in the New Testament. Bethany shared how that plan impacted her life. Has the plan ever impacted your life? And let's make sure whenever we present the plan, we try to do it as accurately as we can. Skyler mentioned that he would be at the back. I'll give away his whole afternoon. He'll stay here all afternoon if you want to talk about the plan, because there's nothing more important. Let me ask you to stand and pray with me. Father, I thank you that a missionary, as a prisoner, position of weakness from an earthly perspective, never budged. He ran to righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment, and then he presented the plan that, that you had. You sent him to the Gentiles to do these five things. And God, we just confess to you today, we need all five. We celebrate all five. We love all five. We're grateful for all five. And God, I pray for our family members and our friends and our coworkers, even the people maybe we have trouble liking, that you would open their eyes to see the plan. May we, by your grace, faithfully live out the plan so they see what it looks like. When someone has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, may we accurately present what that looks like so they're not confused. May we show what a trophy of the plan looks like. Not because we're a trophy, but because you redeemed us, you made us, you, you could put us on display and say this isn't a perfect picture, but this is a picture of someone who's been impacted by the plan. Thank you for this great summary today in Christ's name. Amen.